I, I fully understand that sometimes I clearly mistake words, for example, or I'm not able to pronounce words correctly. And yeah, that's a problem sometimes. My accent has always been with me. It's something that I can't get rid of and has changed with me. Last time on State of the Pod, we discussed our responses and reactions to hearing other people's accents. But how do those with accents experience it? In this episode, with interviews with international members of the Cornell community, we'll dive into how speakers with accents navigate their personal and professional lives in an increasingly globalized world. Hi, I'm Adele Williams. I'm Lynn Hong. And I'm Macy Smith. This is State of the Pod, where science meets society. We often think of languages as large, internally consistent systems, but there's actually a lot of diversity within languages themselves. For instance, dialects of a language, like Hanglish or Hindi English, which is spoken in India, or African-American vernacular English spoken in the United States. A dialect of a language can have a distinct vocabulary, syntax structure, and turns of phrase. Another common variation that comes to mind might be an accent, which is a subset of a dialect, referring to its pronunciations, how we say different words. So when two people speak the same language, but in different dialects and accents, it's almost like playing the same game with different rules. And you can imagine the confusion that it might create. We spoke to Fathma, an international student at Cornell University, and Professor Kiar Formiki, an associate professor of Asian studies at Cornell, to learn more about how their accents have colored their experiences. Fathma shared that minor miscommunications with her roommate sometimes arise as a result of her accent. Like, I have to explain myself, and sometimes she just doesn't get what I'm saying, and she'll ask me to repeat and repeat and repeat. I just was like, wait, can you spell the word? And I said the word, and I'm like, oh yeah, you don't say it like that. Like, oh yeah, okay. But still, I get it. She's American, so she's not used to my accent. But so far, it's been a great experience. But for some, these miscommunications can be frustrating or even alienating. Professor Formiki shares her experience as a master's student moving from Italy to England. I could read my material and do fairly well in classes, but whenever I would go to the corner store, I just would not understand what people said because I always studied standard BBC English. Um, and this was so displacing. I mean, I remember arriving in my dorm room for as a master's student and having to get a card key for my room and not being able to understand and the other person obviously not being really able to understand me either even though i thought that my english was pretty good personally i find it mostly frustrating it's like i'm sure i'm saying the word in the way in which i think it's supposed to be said why are you not understanding me what am i getting wrong what is the what is it that i wasn't told However, there's not actually one right way to speak a language. By objective linguistic standards, all accents and dialects are equally legitimate. But there are standard dialects and accents within each community, the dialects spoken by the dominant social group. Jessie, a British exchange student, gives us an example of how this works in Britain. I describe my accent as kind of RP, which stands for Received Pronunciation. RP is like associated with the middle class more, it's like, um, 
sometimes call it BBC accent or Oxford accent um, and associated with quite a lot of privilege. So probably, and sometimes people refer to it like, like you're saying, like as, as, oh, they don't have an accent, like, but they've got an RP accent. It's kind of become like standard British accent, even though it's actually a minority um, of people that have that accent. Those who deviate from that standard dialect are marked as speaking with an accent, though technically everyone has an accent. Professor Formiki's experiences show how the very definition of accents is relative to the dominant accent in that specific context. But I know that the way that I talk now, I have an American accent, quote unquote, according to my friends in the UK. Um, and obviously to my American peers, I do not have an American accent. And um, you know, to my students, I probably don't have an American accent either. This perception of difference may be relatively innocuous, even positive. But for many, deviating from the linguistic norm means they are seen as having a poor grasp of the language. To mitigate the inconveniences and stigma attached to non-standard accents and dialects, some people code switch. Code switching is shifting between a non-standard dialect and the standard dialect in different contexts, employing whichever is more effective in that situation. This is consistent with how accents, dialects, and language more broadly are important in how we form and communicate identity. Changing your accent can be a means of projecting a persona to adapt to different professional situations. When I'm talking formally and I am reading out or thinking, being more mindful about what I say, often I have my English accent, my British English accent comes through more um, profoundly, kind of someone I my, my perceived educated and perceived posh self, which obviously is not who I am, but, but definitely if I'm in a more formal um, environment, I try to have as what I consider as clean an accent as possible. And I need to talk more slowly. I need to really focus on what I'm saying. And I, and I get annoyed when I mispronounce something, whereas usually I don't really care. Aside from the professional sphere, accents are also a way of fitting into a social space. I'm Skyping with my English friends. I try to sound more English than, than I would normally speak, even though I can't do that anymore. I will really, I know that I try really hard. Uh, because I want to fit in, right? Fitting in may seem trivial, but on the broader societal stage, the stakes of linguistic assimilation can be very high. Language and how you speak is an important marker of national identity, highlighting who belongs and who doesn't. Professor Formiki shares how it takes a conscious effort to sound like you belong, even in the country of your birth. If I'm in, Ita in Italy, for example, and I happen to have to speak English for whichever reason, I feel that I try to play down any kind of English accent and sound more like I have a stronger Italian accent. Even when my peer, I definitely speak the least accented English. And it's sometimes I feel that it makes me an outlier in, oh, you know, she's the Italian who went abroad and she's showing off that she has lived abroad for the past 15 years. And, you know, and her English is hard to understand. It sounds like, she sounds like the TV, right? In Italy, if I'm speaking English, 
if I want to not be pointed at as snob or as I really don't know what's the right term, but it's not pretty. Um, then I need to play down my accent. I need to sound more Italian. And I do that regularly. As much as dialects and accents are dynamic, evolving according to different situations, they are also enduring cultural and emotional touch points. We interviewed Nicolo and Jason, two international students, who gave us a glimpse into the intimate relationships they share with their mother tongue. Well, I enjoy speaking Italian because it's my native language. So it's the one in which, in which uh, uh, I can be freer in talking because I can understand everything that is produced by it. I like Italian. I like speaking Italian. And even if in the future I may be working abroad, uh, I don't know, uh, I would like to preserve Italian. For me, it will be, I have to say, it, a little bit a loss of my identity, at least a, a little bit uh, a small part of me to lose uh, some uh, knowledge of Italian. So I wouldn't like it to happen. Something that is a great matter of personal regret is that I, when I was like in eighth and ninth grade, I just thought English was cooler, you know, like I used spoke English with my friends, for example, and just because of that, I would, I, I kind of put less emphasis on Chinese. When I moved back to Hong Kong, because I, I was in the US before that, that was probably like the, the moment where I realized that I was in my hometown and yet somehow I sucked at speaking my own language. I really love Cantonese, I love the language, I think, it, it is a language that is slowly disappearing as well, so I really want to hope to try and like kind of keep it alive. I've really been trying to kind of practice it, get better at it, and just kind of keep it in my life a little bit more. There is this idea of passing on language and language as a vector of cultural affinity and understanding. Like, there's so much more to language than just vocabulary. Beyond personal identity, language and accents are a way of transmitting culture and creating a shared identity. Professor Formiki and Jason share how language is key to how they experience kinship and culture. Professor Formiki weighs in on why it's important to her that her daughter is fluent in Italian. It's her identity and it's also access to, um, well, public education, public university. It's access to being a, e a functional EU citizen. You know, I want her to feel at home in a European environment and language is a vector of that cultural um, heritage. And so if I talk to my daughter, I speak in Italian. And if there is an English word in there that is a loan word into Italian or it's just something like daddy is daddy, but I will say it with an Italian accent. I will say the English word in an Italian accent because the in my, in my brain, but also what I'm performing for my daughter is the fact that Italian is our space, right? It's that space between me and her. And so even if English intrudes into life because we need to use this English word, we can still say it in an Italian way. I feel like my goal with Canto is that, Cantonese, is that I want to be able to pass it on to my kids. I really hope that I'm able to carry on, I think, our Cantonese culture and our Cantonese language to my little kids. I think, I think that I will be content if I'm able to just fully speak to my kid in Cantonese and like kind of have like the relationship with Cantonese and English that me and my parents have right now. 
Additionally, entire cultures and communities have grown up around the intersection of multiple languages. For instance, Spanglish speakers in the United States blend the grammar and vocabulary of both languages to create a hybrid. Spanglish arises in areas with varying levels of bilingualism and comes in many forms. Not every Spanglish is the same, and some have been recognized as their own language. These languages have grown and adapted with the communities who have spoken them for centuries and will continue to do so. The average American is more likely than ever to interact with someone who speaks English as their second language. About half the world is bilingual, and globalization has created growing international flows of people and ideas. Within the United States itself, the population of bilingual individuals is steadily increasing. In this section, we'll unpack what it's like to switch your thought and speech between languages. A few factors determine when bilingual individuals switch between languages. Firstly, proficiency in both languages. Jason describes switching between English and Cantonese. I've been doing this since I was a, like, a really, really young child. So I think it's like because of that, I've learned how to just like because I learned both of these languages in unison, it was quite easy and quite common actually to switch between those languages. It's just like a really, really natural process. It's like, oh, I can't really think of the Cantonese word off the top of my head, so I'm just going to use the English word. People also code switch depending on the context of the interaction. A study by Professor Viorica Marion in 2016 shows how children learn to associate languages with specific contexts at a young age. She found that children in bilingual households appeared to know who spoke which language early on, and would often choose the correct language to communicate with them. Fatima's experience of when she switches between French and English similarly reflects a contextually grounded use of language. When I'm thinking about school, I think I was, I was thinking English, but when I think about like family issues and family stuff, I was thinking French. I think in both. At this point, I think in both, <laughs> which is amazing. But I know that when I pray, I pray in French. Psychologists found that the language bilingual individuals are thinking in influences their thought processes. The foreign language effect proposed by Kiza et al. is that when given a problem scenario in their non-native language, bilinguals are less likely to be influenced by cognitive biases stemming from the way the problem is presented compared to when using their native language. For instance, individuals thinking in their non-native language were less likely to commit causal fallacies and equate correlation to causation. They were less superstitious, being less likely to attribute negative emotions to events seen as unlucky, like broken mirrors. People like Jason may make switching between languages look easy, but according to psychologists, it's actually a really complex cognitive task. Proficient bilingual individuals rarely speak in a language they don't intend to to someone who doesn't understand it or accidentally code switch. But the neural networks for both languages are actually activated when bilinguals read, listen, or speak in either language. This means bilinguals are constantly executing a high degree of cognitive control to select which language to use and which to suppress. 
These cognitive capacities are linked to slowing cognitive decline in old age and improving executive functions such as regulating attention and organization. Like any skill, the ability to switch between languages can be trained with practice. Professor Formiki shared how the birth of her daughter improved her ability to code switch between English and Italian. My own language switch capability has definitely increased. Before, it was a lot harder for me to go switch if my mother and my husband were both around to kind of shift speaking Italian with one and English with the other. We just get lazy and use English all the time. Uh, but now with my daughter around, I do this, this language shift all the time. But taking a step back, learning a second language and speaking and thinking in it can all be extremely challenging. The multitudes of Duolingo users out there might agree. It takes years to develop a native intuition of a language. Fatma shared her experiences transitioning from a French-speaking environment to an English-speaking environment. When I want to express myself, the only thing that I can't do in English, uh, that I can say in English, because although I've spent a year learning English, I still don't know it properly. And there is usually when I have to express emotions, when I'm afraid, when I'm happy, when I'm, I don't know, I, there are things that I can't express in English. And I find myself saying some words in French or Swahili. And I'm like, yeah, no, she doesn't know that. <laughs> yeah, it has happened. And even after many years of fluency, second language speakers can continue to contend with the hidden labor of translation. It's a constant, conscious effort to think and speak in a second language and also to adapt your accent in that language to the situation. You know, when then using another, I don't like the expression native, native tongue but you know there is something about the fact that is the your comfort your language of comfort in a way when you're not using that language you're always performing you're always communicating or putting a lot more effort into what you're trying to communicate because you need to figure out it's not instinctual speaking another language is exhausting we can pretend that is second nature we can pretend oh in the past 15 years of my life, English has been my primary language of operation, but it is exhausting. There is a process of translation, of transmutation is exhausting to talk about feelings, the way that things that we encountered and difficulties, the struggles, you know, it's a, to, to translate this into another language. Um, and so the, when I'm comfortable, you know, if it's after dinner, I'm sharing something with my family, my accent, my slip, my English structures might not make much sense. And I might not be using the correct word um, because I'm, I don't feel that I have to perform up to a certain standard. And so obviously accent is the first thing, but there is so much more than that. Even though accents and dialects are intricately tied to complex phenomena like cultural identity and societal politics, for speakers with accents, 
Their accents are simply a natural part of how they experience their speech and the world around them. To close us off, we asked our interviewees how they feel about their accents. Actually, I don't have any adjective that would define how I feel about my accent because it's something that I don't think about. I never think about having an accent. Even though I've been learning English since uh, probably 15 years, uh, I don't know how to cut it down. I have it and I have to live with it. As much as language is an important expression of identity at the individual group and national level, it also allows us to reach across these divisions and connect with each other. I don't care what my accent is, it's just a way of communicating my, my ideas, my feelings, or getting a message across. When I'm talking to someone, that's not something that comes in mind. Like, I have an accent. No, I just speak and I hope that the person will get me. Thanks for joining us on this exploration of accents and dialects. This has been State of the Pod. Your hosts are Adele Williams, Lin Hong, and me, Macy Smith. Our lead producer was Yoon Yoon Wang. Our head writer was Lin Hong. Our music is composed by Jacob Ravello. Special thanks for this episode goes to Professor Chiara Formiki, Dan Bergdoff, Nicolo Bargellini, Fatma Shivani, Jason Liu, Jesse Mayall, and the Milstein Lab for our recording equipment and software. See you next time!